Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the divine speeches in Job chapters 38 through 41. And we're really pleased to be joined today by Dr. Bill Brown. Bill Brown is William Marcellus McFeeters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary. That was a mouthful. It was a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) And he has written piles of books on uh, the Psalms and the so-called wisdom literature uh, in the (laughs) Hebrew Bible. Uh, And his book, which I have here, Wisdom's Wonder, uh, Character, Creation, and Crisis in the Bible's Wisdom Literature is one of my personal favorites. And um, we'll be engaging a little bit with some of his thoughts on Job in this book as we go through our conversation. But in addition to being, I think, just a creative and insightful and very accessible scholar, uh, Bill is, I think, one of the best writers in biblical scholarship. I just appreciate the way that his prose, it just sparkles with metaphors and similes. Let me just give you a couple of examples from the chapter on Job that we're thinking about today. Um, There's one place where he says, Job is not to gird up his loins against lions. Loins against lions. It's just genius. Um, And then here's another one. Uh, Oh, I lost it. Um, Another one here where he says that um, Job's tour of terror in the end, becomes an excursion into wonder. As epistemological barriers break down and an awareness of deep connectedness emerges, I link, therefore I am. So I link, therefore I am. It's just great. So um, Bill, thank you so much for being with us and for all of the thought that you've put into interpreting the Hebrew Bible and and shared with us through your writing. uh, And also for examples like that of writing in an engaging way. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Ronnie. Uh, It is a pleasure to be with you both. And I have the utmost respect and admiration and appreciation of your own work, Will, on the so-called wisdom (laughs) literature of the Hebrew Bible. Thanks so much. Well, uh, Bill, what first drew you to the book of Job? Yeah, so who who can't get drawn into the book of Job? But there are several reasons, and two of them immediately come to mind. Uh, One is, uh, I would say that the book of Job is the most controversial book of the Bible. And um, I don't know, Bill, we're doing Romans on the other, on the other (laughs) Testament. (laughs) Well, I, as a Hebrew Bible scholar, I I have to reserve judgment on that. All right. Okay. But uh, I, um, I, I tend to gravitate towards the more controversial parts of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. And I do recall a famous Jewish scholar, Matityahu uh, Tzavat, who once said that the book of Job is the only book of the Bible that is against the Bible. And what he meant by that is that the book of Job is a protest against the moral retributive sort of meritocracy that you find elsewhere in the wisdom literature and in Deuteronomy, where, where the righteous are blessed and rewarded and the wicked are punished. And Job seems to be a protest against that kind of thinking. So that's that's one reason. 
Uh, the other reason is that um, uh, the, the speeches by God, the so-called Yahweh speeches in chapters 38 to 42, offer one of the most exciting, uh, enlivening, enlightening, crazy kind <laughs> of depiction of creation in the whole Hebrew Bible. I think yeah. it rivals it rivals Genesis one in terms of its cosmic perspective. It's uh, richly poetic. Uh, it is um, it is full of passion, and so the, the this poetic presentation of creation by God I think points to something of the passion of God towards creation itself. So so I love that. Yeah. So those those are two reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's clear from your work that you have a real passion for this text because it's a place where uh, a lot of your interests intersect, right? Your interest in creation, in wonder, in poetry. Uh, and so that's why when we were scheduling out this season, I, I thought of you first to come in and talk about this text. So I'm, I'm grateful that you are able to spend the time to do that with us. How do you see the divine speeches here fitting into the book of Job as a whole? Yeah, so I, I see it as sort of the culmination and climax of the book. Of course, there's the epilogue, which sort of maps out the aftermath of God's revelation to Job. And I know you have a wonderful scholar who's going to comment on that uh, for the next podcast. Uh, but uh, I think it really is the high point. It is a revelational speech. Uh, it is what Job asked for. Uh, Job wanted an accounting of God. Uh, in order to uh, address his suffering. Uh, the strange thing, though, is that God comes on God's own terms, not on Job's terms, and ends up avoiding addressing Job's own suffering as well. So it is a, it is a climax that is also um, indirect in terms of solving the problem of Job. Not that there is a solution for Job. Uh, so it's, there's a certain mystery an aura of enigma uh, surrounding these speeches that have led scholars, interpreters, readers, wondering, perhaps scratching their heads, what is really going on here? So I'm looking forward to talking about that. Yeah. Uh, Bill, what for you is the most difficult aspect of understanding the divine speeches and how do you solve it if you do? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, as I've already mentioned, uh, God's speeches do not directly address Job's suffering. Uh, God's speeches do not offer a, um, a direct theodicy, an explanation of how a righteous God can allow suffering in the world, and particularly Job's suffering. Um, that's not directly addressed. And so that's one thing that I still have difficulty with. I, mm. I had wished that God was more direct in addressing Job's suffering, and I'm sure Job had wished that too. Uh, <laughs> secondly, um, uh, since it is a cosmology that God presents to Job, I am both troubled and excited over the fact that it is a, sort of an anti-creation text. Hmm. It goes in the opposite direction of what you would expect from these ancient creation texts. Like in Genesis, we begin with uh, chaos, a sort of benign chaos of, um, of uh, formlessness and void and darkness and sort of a watery primordial soup. 
And then it ends with uh, order and structure and stability um, and Sabbath. Uh, that's the flow of Genesis 1. But in, in Job's uh, creation, uh, those chapters in chapters 38 to 42, God seems to move in an opposite direction. Uh, we begin with the laying of the earth's foundations and the morning stars singing for joy. And we end up with Leviathan, the quintessential symbol of chaos. So it moves from uh, stability to chaos, whereas all other creation texts, uh, both in the Bible and throughout the ancient Near East, uh, move from chaos to creation and order and structure. So there's sort of an anti-creation streak to God's creation as presented to Job. So I find that troubling. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that as we dig through the text here. And, and let's get started in the very first verse. So chapter 38, verse one, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And if you're reading along in an English Bible, you might see that Lord is in all caps there, which is an indication that this is the divine name, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. Uh, is it significant that that name is used here? Because for the rest of the dialogue between Job and his friends, it seems like they've all avoided that name. There may be one place where it appears uh, in 12.9. So do you think it's significant that it appears here? I think it is, Will. That's a great question. And uh, I'm sure you thought about that as well. Uh, and I'm continuing to think about that. But the only other place in the dialogues in which uh, Lord... Uh, as a covenantal personal name of God, specifically Israel's God is used, is in chapter 12, verse 9, after allegedly Job had told his friends to ask the animals, ask the beasts, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they will tell you what the hand of the Lord has done. The hand of the Lord has done this. And so I simply uh, recognize that those places in which the word the title, the personal name Lord is used, it's used in these creational contexts uh, in Job chapter 12 and then throughout uh, chapters 38 and following. Um, so I, I wonder, and these are, I'm just thinking out loud, I wonder if these are the texts that the poet, uh, the Jobin poet highlights for Israel to pay attention to, um, that uh, these are very significant texts. Uh, asking creation to give testimony to God's work uh, in creation in chapter 12. And then, of course, God's presentation, the Lord's presentation of creation to Job in chapters 38 to 41. Um, and, and there may be, I'm sure, a theological purpose as well, that here God's personal name is associated with cosmic creation. Mm -hmm. That the creator God is the same God as Israel's God, the Lord, um, Yahweh. I am who I am. And, yeah. and so that, that there's a convergence here between creation and the God of the covenant, specifically Israel's covenant, which then makes me think about the first covenant in the Bible, which is a cosmic covenant, a covenant of creation. That is Noah's covenant uh, mm -hmm. in chapter nine, in which God... Uh, promises unilaterally 
covenantally never to destroy the earth again by the waters of the flood. So it reminds me that the very first covenant of the Bible is a covenant that includes all of creation. Yeah, thank you. And, and you've pointed out that kind of rhetorical technique because the author seems to avoid that divine name. When it does appear, then it has additional meaning. We pay attention to it in a different kind of way. Uh, now, what about the fact here in this verse that the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind? What's the significance of the whirlwind? Well, it certainly shows that God is not coming as a warm and fuzzy deity <laughs> for Job. Uh, God is not coming as Job's friend. Uh, his friends have already alienated themselves from him anyway. But but God comes in terror. And, and whirlwind, the whirlwind is one of the... Um, instruments, you might say, in God's theophonic toolkit, uh -huh. uh, raging wind and storm and the like. And Job had already complained uh, about God having crushed him as a tempest back in chapter nine. But I also recall how Job's children perished back in chapter one. And that was through a great wind that caused the house the house, the building to collapse upon them. And so Job is fully aware of the terror of the whirlwind, uh, given his own story, beginning all the way back in chapter one. So, so God comes in theophonic terror. Um, this, is the, this is the God whose majesty and power uh, overruns all of creation and has overrun <laughs> to Job too, as he <laughs> complains about in chapter nine. What's interesting here for me is that given this theophonic, powerful presence of God introduced in chapter 38, thereafter, we don't have any more explanation or description of God's power um, uh, in in the third person. That is, there's no more narrative about how God's power is causing all of creation to, to go into turmoil and travail. There's just that one word, whirlwind, and everything that comes after that is God's words. Mm. It's, it's a, it, you might say it's sort of a uh, a, a windy blast, a tempest of discourse that follows uh, uh, what happens in chapter 38. So it's all words that follow. That leads me to think that really what we don't have here is a theophany so much as a logophony, a word, a, a, a sort of an epiphany of words of divine speech. And in a way, God overwhelms Job with God's words now, but not by the might of God's holy arm, not by casting lightning bolts and raging wind. All we have is the voice out of the whirlwind. And what follows is a whirlwind of words coming from the mouth of God. Now, Ronnie is going to get us into that whirlwind in a second, but you mentioned the fact that this, this um, whirlwind makes us think of 917, where Job says, for he crushes with crushes me with a tempest. But the verse before that is, if I summoned him and he answered me, I do not believe that he would listen to my voice. And I wonder if there's a connection being made there too, because one of the questions that we have to have in the back of our minds as we read through the divine speeches is, okay, actually, 
God did come when Job summoned him. But did God actually listen to his voice? Is God actually addressing the complaints that Job brought up in the dialogue? Yeah. So I detect a a note of irony here. And Mm -hmm. uh, many interpreters um, find irony running throughout the book of Job. Um, Here, perhaps, is one instance. Um, So it's true, uh, Will, that God does not address Job's condition directly, uh, as if God had not heard Job's words. On the other hand, there are certain words of Job that we find throughout the dialogues that God, I think, directly addresses, like in chapter 3 and in chapter 30. And so you might say God is doing a workaround uh, of Job's uh, complaints by indirectly addressing Job's concerns without answering them directly. So it's sort of a both and uh, situation here. So there's a touch of irony, I think, here when we read of Job's complaint to to God and God finally um, coming and addressing Job, but not in the way that Job would have expected and not the way in which I think first readers would have uh, expected as well. Well, Bill, mm. let's get a taste of Job's response to Job, or God's response. Sorry, let's get a taste of God's response to Job from the beginning <laughs> of chapter 38. Uh, here we read this in verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Now, Bill, the tone of the speech seems sarcastic, maybe even harsh. Is God angry with Job? And if he is, why is he angry? And if he isn't, well, then why is he talking to him like this? (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Roddy. Um, The answer to that question is yes. So I think one could legitimately detect a note of anger in God's voice, but it's anger with a purpose, and I would argue for a pedagogical purpose. Uh, What follows in chapters 38 to 41, uh, with uh, one interruption by Job, uh, which really isn't an interruption, God is delivering a rebuke. And we learn about rebukes in the book of Proverbs, where it is said in, oh, I think chapter 9, that uh, uh, rebuke a scoffer and he will hate you for it. But if you rebuke the wise, they will love you for it. Mm-hmm. Rebuke was a, a kind of a, a form of rhetoric to teach. Uh, there was a degree of harshness to it. Uh, there is a something, there's something confrontative about the rebuke. And uh, one can easily imagine um, the rebuker being angry at somebody else over some uh, correction uh, that needed to be made. Mm-hmm. And so actually the most glorious, lengthiest, the lengthiest rebuke in the Bible is in chapters 38 to 41. It is God's rebuke of Job, which actually reminds me that God is not punishing Job. God is not uh, uh, trying to um, make Job guilty of anything, let alone of sin. Rather, God is using this rhetorical form of wisdom discourse to teach Job a thing or two about creation 
and as a result of, about God. So sure, I think you can detect anger here, uh, but it is anger for a purpose for teaching Job about creation that launches him to experience things way beyond his purview, way beyond his understanding. It is a, it is a form of correction, um, of sapiential wisdom correction. It's a form of teaching. Uh, and so that's, and so God has every right to, uh, to ask these questions and to make these points. Uh, they do put Job's, Job in his place to be sure, but it is a place that is also life-giving for Job and for the reader as well. Uh, so we could maybe we could maybe call this a form of tough love from God for Job. I sure will. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> um, now the the rhetorical form in which God expresses this rebuke uh, is primarily rhetorical questions. And if you just look at the passage, almost every sentence ends with a question mark. Why do you think God is depicted as communicating with Job this way? Why does the rebuke take that form of rhetorical question after rhetorical question? So with every rhetorical question, the answer is obvious. And, and so it's a way of engaging Job to answer these obvious questions. It's interesting that God challenges Job at the outset um, to uh, address God. Gird up your loins like a combatant. I will question you and you shall declare to me. And so all these questions have these easy answers. And uh, Job does not really need to declare these answers because these answers are always understood. Right, like the first God one, the first one, right? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Yeah, it is God who is able to do these things, lay the foundation, uh, to swaddle the sea, uh, to uh, chain and move the constellations. Uh, the answers are obvious. Uh, and so... Uh, Job does not even need to speak up in order to answer these questions. They're simply understood. So, so um, yeah, they're, they're questions for Job, but they're also questions for the reader. It is sort of the beginning point of a pedagogical teaching moment uh, uh, between Job and God. And uh, as you dig more deeply into these questions, these questions, rhetorical that, as they are, also are packed with information about creation. Yes. So it's like a, a gifted uh, biology teacher uh, who teaches by way of asking questions that are rhetorical with these easy answers, but these questions also are packed with wonderful information and wisdom about the subject matter, in this case, a creation. Sometimes I, I like to think that God is teaching Job extreme biology 101 or extreme cosmology 101 and does so in this very engaging way. So does Job get like scientifically smarter after these speeches? Well, so this is actually the question I was going to follow up when we were talking about the rhetorical questions, Bill, and you were talking about um, how these speeches attempt to teach Job. But for a rhetorical question to work, someone has to already know the answer, right? So do you actually learn anything from a rhetorical question or how does that learning happen? 
Well, it can or can't. I think these are special rhetorical questions that God presents to Job because um, because when God says, uh, who can do this? Who can do that? Can you count uh, the, the number of um, months that uh, the mountain goats give birth? Um, and, and the answer to that is that Job can't and God can. So there's sort of hooks uh, that provide some information. They don't give every information, a bit of information, but they're sort of invitations to explore further. Uh, again, the answers to these rhetorical questions are obvious. Uh, but, uh, but the way these rhetorical questions are posed, they are packed with information, almost in an invitational way uh, to learn more about these creatures from the lion to Leviathan. And a lot is described about these animals too, as well as uh, go back cosmologically to the dwelling place of light and the storehouses of hail. These are all poetic, of course, uh, but these they, they name the elements of meteorology, they name the elements of the cosmos as God names these animals. Uh, in fact, what I like to think of is that Job here is very different from Adam in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God brings the animals to Adam for what purpose? To name them. So Adam has the privilege and the power to uh, name, identify, define these animals to an extent. In Job, Job does not name these animals. He learns their names mm. and he becomes aware of something of their habits and their habitats. It's as if Job is transported into their natural domains to learn something about their lifestyle and, uh, and their conditions. And so there's a lot of learning going on through the power of divine poetry, which in effect transports Job's transports Job on the wings of these rhetorical questions to learn something about these animals that he was unaware of. Yeah, Bill, you mentioned the animals and in chapter 38, verse 39, through the end of chapter 39, God takes Job on a kind of safari ride, right? <laughs> he takes him through a ride to observe the animal kingdom. And he Here's one example in verses one to four of chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats gave birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return to them. I mean, earlier he talks about uh, the ravens and the young lions. Um, why does God give these descriptions of all these different animals. And do you have a favorite? Actually, my favorite is the very first animal that is uh, employed, deployed by God. And that's the lion only because of this radical question in verse 39 of chapter 38, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Mm. That question blows away Job's own worldview, because Job would have expected the question, can you hunt and kill the lion? Mm -hmm. Just like any good uh, imperial, um, uh, any imperial person, any king of the ancient Near East is called upon to do, to kill the lions, the, the wild game, in order to prove his prowess on the battlefield. 
And when God challenges Job to gird up his loins like a man, like a combatant, Job expected God to challenge him to kill the lion. Instead, Job, God asked Job, can you provide for the lion? So that turns, that turns, that question, can you provide for the lion, turns Job's worldview upside down. That God is, the biz, is in the business of providing for creation. And Job needs to find his place in this cosmic program of provision rather than to assert his physical prowess or his privilege uh, upon the wilderness and at home as well. Uh, so there's that dynamic that God sets up at the very beginning. When it, now, when it comes to the mountain goats, it's this description of the mountain goats and the deer is full of the vitality of these creatures bursting with the birth of, of these kids that grow strong and do not return. Now you get a sense of the life cycle of a mountain goat. And so Job is learning something about the challenges and the freedom of these wild creatures. Um, and, and God goes through uh, all these creatures, as you mentioned, Ronnie, and they uh, all exhibit a sense of freedom and dignity and fearlessness in the wilderness. Um, and I think one of the learning moments, one of the teaching moments for Job is that the wilderness is not a place of chaos. It is a place of the vitality of life at work, bursting forth from birth to provision. And, and so, the wild, so God is changing Job's mindset about the wilderness. For Job, the wilderness was a place of chaos and death and danger. And it's still that. But God tells Job it's also a place of, of, the, of the push of life. Uh, and the dignity of these animals. Now, my other favorite animal is the onager or the wild ass, since you asked. Uh, and only because Job already talks about the wild ass earlier, in which Job likens the wild ass as scavengers, like the poor. The poor are like scavengers. The poor are scavengers like the wild ass. Um, and, and so there's a pathetic pitiful attitude towards the poor in the way Job brings the onager, the wild ass, and the poor together. And what God is saying here to Job is that the onager is a quintessentially wild creature. It has nothing to do with its domestic cousin, the donkey, in the, in the city. In fact, the onager looks at the city and sees only chaos and uh, slavery, enslavement, mm. and the onager has nothing to do with that. Its home is in the wilderness, in the salt lands, in the mountains, as it, as it uh, roams freely for its own provision. So God is reversing Job's attitude about the world, particularly with regards to the wilderness. And if Job shows to if God shows to Job that the onager is a creature with dignity and freedom and power, so what about the poor that, uh, that Job had likened uh, to the pitiful onager in his own mindset? So this is part of the indirection of right. these rhetorical questions, is that 
God is not only teaching Job about nature and all of its wildness. Hmm. God is also teaching Job about his own community that is stratified uh, in which there are poor and there are slaves and he's responsible for them. Now, it's also, uh, you see God, we talked about the, the mountain goat situation here, where actually God prevents, presents himself as a kind of midwife to mountain yes. goats. Uh, and I really like the verses right before that, where this is chapter 38, verse 41, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wonder about for lack of food? Well, it, it seems like the implication is, well, God does. Uh, so God kind of presenting himself as the mother raven feeding the ravens yeah, in the wild right, and then right. the, the midwife to mountain goats. So uh, there is even in the wilderness, that's not outside of God's concern and God's care. A lot of these animals would be considered unclean animals. Right. right. Um, do you think that that also could communicate something to Job, not only about the responsibility that he should have right. for nature, imitating God's concern, but the fact that even though God, Job feels like God has given up on him and doesn't care about him, could it be that through this imagery, God is saying, I care for the ravens. It's a little bit like Math, um, Jesus and Matthew saying that God cares for the sparrow. So, of course, right. yes. he cares for you. Do you think that's a possible way to read that? I think so, Will. I think that's uh, certainly very much a major part of a point of God's message to Job is that God is a caretaker. God is a midwife. Uh, God also uh, allows and enables these creatures to go about freely hmm. uh, with their own dignity. These are these are creatures that are fully selved. Hmm. That is to say, they are they are subjects within their own right. Uh, they are agents uh, within their own right, and so God cares for them. God treasures them. I also like to think of God as a um, as a cosmic parent. Mm -hmm. who uh, presents to Job sort of all these snapshots of all of God's children, proud that God is of these creatures. Um, so God is proud of these creatures as much as God provides for them uh, in order to instill a sense of wonder and awe in, in Job about the wilderness, a sense of wonder and awe that is life-giving and not destructive. Um, so, so in a way, God is changing God's image for Job in these uh, in these speeches, whereas God had whereas Job earlier um, had um, associated God with terror. Uh, God is sort of a terminator in, in Job's uh, uh, eyes. Uh, God is destructive, um, and God is shifting not only Job's perspective on creation, but also Job's perspective on God as the creator and provider of all. And so, yeah, I think God is showing Job that throughout all of this, God is, is caring for Job. And that is played out then, of course, in the epilogue uh, for another, another time in your podcast to talk about. <laughs> now, speaking of God's pride in his creation. We move in chapters 40 and 41 to behemoth and Leviathan. And one of the striking things about these descriptions is the fact that God does seem to show a certain pride uh, yeah. in them. So we see chapter 40, verse 15, look at behemoth, 
which I made just as I made you. And I hope we'll have a chance to talk about the significance of that verse. But before we get to that, what are behemoth and Leviathan? Well, they are larger than life creatures. They are mythic uh, in terms of their profile as described in these speeches. Uh, but as you and I know, uh, certain scholars have likened them to the hippopotamus yeah. and the crocodile. Yeah. Um, and, and so maybe they are, the way they are described has some resonance with these, these creatures that are fearsome in their own right, including the hippo. Um, but they are larger than these creatures, to be sure. Um, they are, you might say, these creatures cosmically writ large. On the other hand, we know that crocodiles do not breathe fire. Uh, <laughs> and Leviathan is described as doing so. Um, and hippos don't play in the mountains. Uh, they, are water, um, they are water creatures, amphibious. Uh, but Behemoth does that. And so their their range and their actions exceed these particular creatures that we're familiar with. They are, uh, they're examples, uh, stellar symbolic examples of chaos, mm -hmm. uh, particularly Leviathan, which is mentioned elsewhere in biblical tradition. Uh, and what is very surprising is that um, God says nothing about God's intent to kill these creatures for the sake of creation's order and stability. Instead, God allows them, proud as God is of these creatures, to roam freely uh, throughout uh, creation. And so God is proud of them. God admires them. They, of course, they're created by God. Uh, and, uh, and God has no intention on destroying them. Uh, you get a very different view from other biblical traditions, particularly about Leviathan as a creature slated for destruction uh, in order to uh, for God to establish creation. Yeah. So what about that verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 15, look at behemoth, which I made just as I made you. Why does God say that? What is the connection that God is making between the behemoth and Job? So this is the one and only time that God mentions Job in the context of creation. Um, and, and actually, the, the literal Hebrew rendering is, Behold, behemoth, which I made with you. Hmm. That's, uh, and so that preposition, with, hmm. I made behemoth with you, suggests to me a connection some kind of bond between this monstrous creature and, and Job. Uh, God is saying there's something that connects you to behemoth, Job, and by extension with all these creatures of the wild. And so I think this is an invitation that God issues to Job, an invitation to compel him to see something of himself in each of these creatures. God, Job has already demonstrated a certain fearlessness before his friends and before God in, in his dialogues. Um, there's a certain blasphemous freedom of defiance uh, that Job embodies uh, when he's engaged in dialogue with his friends. And he has the, the gall to call God to account, to issue a subpoena uh, uh, for God to appear in court. And so there's a certain audacity of chutzpah 
that Job embodies throughout his dialogues. And, um, and I think it is no coincidence that these creatures also exhibit a certain audacity, uh, certainly freedom and fearlessness, even the ostrich, uh, which uh, is somewhat derided for its lack of wisdom, still exhibits this fearlessness against the hunter, the horse and its rider. And so in a way, that's sort of like Job. Job is lacking wisdom, and these speeches fill him up with new wisdom. But there's this fearlessness of Job that God does not condemn, but actually validates. Uh, and God does so by describing these creatures who do the same thing. And of course, uh, after all of this, uh, God does talk about Job having spoken rightly instead yeah. of his friends. Right. Now, but th that would also work the other way, though, because some of these creatures, it's their dependence on God that yeah. comes out, right? Even the lion, God provides prey for the lion. And we talked about the God as a kind of mother raven providing food for the raven. So there's on the one hand, the boldness that God may be approving of Job, but also maybe the reminder that ultimately mm -hmm. he is dependent on God and God's care. Uh, amen to that, Will. I think that is another dimension to these uh, speeches, is that um, as God presents God's self as a caretaker, as a midwife, as a provider, so Job needs to recognize that uh, as well. Uh, the thing about these speeches and throughout the book of Job is that there are many different layers of interpretation, uh, and they're not, uh, they're not either or, they're both and. So on the one hand, the validation of freedom and boldness and audacity. And on the other hand, the recognition that all creatures are, are bound to God. They're dependent upon God. And so Job and Behemoth share this common bond of creaturehood mm -hmm. for God. And as a creature of God, uh, you're also dependent upon God. You receive the gracious provision of God. And so these speeches also exhibit a certain gratuitousness mm -hmm. uh, of God. God is not covenantally bound to creation so much as simply freely exercising care and love on behalf of creation. That's what God does because God, yeah, God loves creation as a mother loves her child. Um, and uh, to the point of, um, and, and, and at the, in the very beginning, in, um, in facilitating the birth of these creatures. And I also want to point out that the sea, um, earlier in chapter, uh, in chapter 38, uh, the sea in chapter 38, verse 8 and following, is actually described as a toddler, uh, <laughs> or, or even as, as early as an infant, swaddled um, and, and secured, um, bursting out from its womb and thick darkness as a swaddling band. Uh, God does not come to vanquish the sea. God is swaddling the sea. And there's another example of God as midwife here. Yeah. So this is going to be a really hard question. I'm just warning you because you just talked about the expanse of different interpretations of this text. But if you were to try and summarize just in a sentence or so, the message that God is trying to get across to Job through these chapters, what would you say? What's the main point that God is trying to convey? 
I link, therefore I am. <laughs> okay. And how does that play out? I mean, what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay. So um, it is a lot of background to that statement, yeah. to be sure. So God reveals to Job creation and all of its wildness and wonder, strangeness and power. And through that, God demonstrates God's love for creation and for him. And God's validation of Job's own dignity and power and audacity, because that itself is reflected in the wildness, the raging wildness of creation. And so um, it just takes that one verse in chapter 40, verse 15, about behemoth, uh, which I made with you. That, I think, is so key to the entire message. God reveals to Job God reveals to Job his place in creation. God has a place in creation uh, connected to the wildness of creation. So the effect is that Job is both bewildered in this worldview that's now been turned upside down, and he's also bewildered. He's bewildered and bewildered about creation. And he takes that bewilderedness back home. And yeah. that's what the epilogue is all about. And um, let me just say, that was a hard question, and you just knocked it out of the park. So well done. Um, but, that was also a really nice literary flourish. I, I prim- I'm just <laughs> living up to expectations here. Um, but one of the things that I appreciate about, appreciate about your reading about the divine speeches is that some people will all say that um, the divine speeches, they... Point, God, point Job to the breadth of creation, but the purpose is to put Job in his place, which is a form of kind of minimizing mm-hmm. Job's complaints, right? How can you complain when God cares about all this other stuff? But you do something different than that, which is to say, yes, God is putting Job in his place within creation, but showing that just as God cares for the rest of his creation, he also cares for Job. So all of the, the rest of creation has a valuable place, and so does Job right. in that, uh, which I think is a valuable turn to that common argument that is often used right. for the divine speech. I mean, if God values uh, behemoth and Leviathan, right, then yeah. surely he also values right. Job, who yeah, is made right. with It's, it's not to the detriment of his care right. for Job. Right. The, you know, the other interesting thing you mentioned, Bill, was the the swaddling of the sea, which, mm. I mean, the sea is the place of chaos and, you know, a dread. Um, it's not the place that you would think is within the purview of God's tender, loving care, which is interesting just theologically, right? Yep. In terms of how even that place of chaos yep. that brings about suffering is somehow being swaddled in God's uh, maternal care. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful image. Uh, well, we get we get to in Job chapter 42 with Job's response to God. And we see in verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Bill, how do you understand what Job is saying here? Does this mean that Job now understands God's message, or what is Job exactly saying to God? That is the $64 million question <laughs> that interpreters over the centuries have asked. We like uh, to ask those here, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I'm happy to give my two cents worth to this expensive question. Um, so there's a grievous mistranslation in the NRSV. And uh, you, you repeated it, uh, Ronnie, in verse six, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think that is a woeful mistranslation. Uh, but first, let me get back to verse is it two, um, verse three, the very end of verse three, in which Job says, uh, I have uttered what I did not understand things too wonderful for me that I did not understand. I did not know. Um, Job is now captured by a sense of wonder and awe. And who wouldn't after reading through these speeches of God uh, that are harsh rhetorically, but also wondrous in their content in describing creation and all of its wonders. And um, it reminds me of a proverb, chapter 30, uh, in which uh, the sage says, there are three things I do not know, four things that are too wonderful for me, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, uh, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a lover with another. And so these are things, these are elements in creation and in community that the sage finds mysterious and wonderful. And Job finds equally so wondrous things in these words of God about creation, including these animals. And so Job is admitting that uh, he spoke in ignorance in the past. He thought he knew creation, but God points out, no, Job, you don't know wit about creation, but I'm here to tell you about creation in all of its glorious wonder and awe. So there's that to Job's answer. And then secondly, in that perhaps most famous line in, um, in Job, other than I know that my Redeemer liveth in chapter 19, in verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. No, the Hebrew says this, therefore I relent and I am comforted over dust and ashes. And so there's nothing about repentance that Job exhibits. God does not require repentance because Job is not guilty of sin. That was all his defense before his friends. And Job acknowledges that. Nowhere in the speeches of God does God condemn Job for sin or guilt, as his friends attempt to do. Rather, God corrects Job on the, on the matter of creation, on the matter of wisdom about creation. And so uh, this is perhaps the greatest mystery in the book of Job, as I find it today. I might find something different mysteriously tomorrow. But today it is, how does Job find comfort in, in uh, his situation of dust and ashes, in his condition of dust and ashes? Uh, the word comfort, uh, necham, in Hebrew, is what you find elsewhere in the book of Job, at least six times, always means comfort, so why not here? I think the uh, 
why you don't get that word translated as comfort in this passage is because interpreters, biblical translators, just can't make sense as to how Job could ever find comfort <clears throat> in these harsh, uh, rebuking statements of God. But I think I think that's what Job finds. That is to say, Job is testifying that God has succeeded where his where his friends have failed. His friends came to console and comfort Job back in chapter two. They failed miserably because they did not take pastoral care 101. <laughs> but what uh, what God does in this harsh rebuke, rebuke is ironically comfort Job. It is through these questions and statements that God draws Job outside of himself, outside of his suffering, to look at creation and all of its wonder and glory. And then he returns back, captivated by a sense of wonder. And it is that wonder that ultimately gives him also a sense of comfort. It's a positive, not a negative. That, uh, that Job testifies to in the end. Job realizes how small he is before the vast extent of creation and before God, the creator of all. That's a given. That's part of right. Job's place in creation. So God right. also right. reveals to Job his connection to the, to the glory of it all, beginning with behemoth, which God made with Job. And so... God, Job finds a connection to the wildness of creation, and then he harbors that sense of wildness as he goes back to his home to raise a new family in a very different way. And so right. it is that bewildedness that gives Job both comfort and courage and, uh, and, and enables him. Uh, to move forward into a new chapter of his life. Well, drawing on the genre, Bill, that, you know, Biblical scholars seem to have perfected uh, over the the many years of blurbing <laughs> books. Um, we asked our guests to blurb about something. It could be a book. It could be doesn't have to be a book. You could blurb about uh, some activity that you've begun during COVID, or it could be you know anything you've enjoyed that you'd like to blurb. Uh, would you give us a short blurb so that when someone watches this or listens to this and they hear, "Wow." Dr. Bill Brown blurb that. I've got to check that out. What would you like to blurb for us and so our here's listeners? The blurb. Wisdom does not come cheap. <laughs> and I plagiarize a wonderful modern day sage by the name of Kevin Kling, K-L-I-N-G. Uh, he was recently featured on Krista Tippett's On Being. And he is a person of great wisdom who has suffered greatly, mm -hmm. uh, including the loss of his two arms. And he is also a humorist. He finds great humor in life, in his own life, and he is stocked full of wisdom. And uh, one of his, his aphorisms is simply, wisdom does not come cheap. And that could also be said of Job. Um, now, wisdom may not come cheap, but this podcast... <laughs> dear listener, comes free to you. Uh, and so actually you got a lot of wisdom <laughs> very cheaply. Uh -huh. um, it, it, 
cost Bill Brown a lot of time and effort to gain this wisdom to share with you. So that's where I think the expense came in. But And it cost uh, us great suffering to produce. Yes, but not to have this conversation, <laughs> no, which yes. was an absolute pleasure from beginning to end. Um, so thank you so much, Bill, for taking the time um, to walk through the divine speeches with us, to go on this safari with us through God's creation. And um, if you enjoyed this podcast and you're feeling a little bewilded right now, uh, one, let me make one suggestion for how you might express that bewildness. You could go to iTunes and give us a rating on iTunes. That, that helps other people hear about this podcast. You could share this podcast with a friend. Um, those would be maybe tamer ways to express that bewildness, but it's a, at least a suggestion. What if they're it, bewildered by the podcast? Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> Sometimes being bewildered is valuable, as, as we've That's discovered. Right. Uh, so maybe that would be another reason to share this yeah. with, with someone else. But uh, anyway, we want to thank Bill Brown again for coming and being with us today and uh, recommend his book, Wisdom's Wonder, to you if you want to dig into things a little more deeply. Uh, but thank you, Bill, and thank you all for listening. Uh, until next time, thank you. take care. The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plum, for their help with production, editing, and promotion.